Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Francis Dernley and I speak to journalist Sergio Olmos, who's been on the ground in southern Ukraine, talking to soldiers and civilians as Ukrainian forces advance towards Kherson. As we usually start our recording at 1pm, we also tracked today's extraordinary events in Westminster and ask what the resignation of Liz Truss means for British support for Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 20th of October, day 239. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and speaking from Kiev after his recent reporting stint in Herzon, Sergio Olmos. I started by asking Francis for the latest news. Yes, thank you, David, and good afternoon, everyone. Yes, an extraordinary, uh, I suppose, announcement from Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, that a Russian aircraft on September the 29th released a missile near a British aircraft patrolling in international airspace over the Black Sea. He said that Britain immediately suspended patrols following the incident involving an unarmed RAF RC-135W rivet joint spy plane, which was on a routine patrol when it was intercepted by two Russian Su-27 fighter aircraft. He has told Parliament that he wrote to his counterpart and the chief of the defence staff in Moscow about what was, quote, a potentially dangerous engagement to express his concerns. Moscow have then replied uh, on the 10th of October, stating that they had conducted an investigation and put the engagement down to a, quote, technical malfunction. They acknowledge the incident took place in international airspace. And so Britain has now resumed patrols uh, following this incident. Now, I think this is significant for two reasons. First and foremost, it shows how in war things can go wrong things can escalate due to human error. And we've spoken at length on the podcast about instances of history where that has occurred and just the dangers of of what can happen in that situation. Now, we don't know what would have occurred if this plane had been shot down by the Russian aircraft, but one can assume that it would have been a major international incident, one that would have had very, very serious ramifications indeed. The fact that we haven't heard uh, about it before now, as I say, this happened on the 20th 29th of September, I think speaks to 
quite how significant this was. I think if it was something that um, was less significant, we would perhaps, ironically enough, have heard about it much sooner. So um, there's that side of it. I think the second side that's worthy of comment, of course, as well, is the fact that the Russians have publicly acknowledged the malfunction, the the error, as it were, and and have have stated their account. One can imagine that they weren't necessarily in a position that we were required to do that, um, it, that, that you can imagine them making all sorts of denials, etc. I think the fact that they have stated this shows that there are still back channels that are open between uh, Britain, Russia, and no doubt between NATO and Russia. And that being the case, one can imagine the kind of conversations that are taking place at the moment. And one hopes that those do remain open, given the kind of rhetoric that's been coming out of Moscow recently. So a very significant instance, and I'm aware that there's an enormous amount happening in Ukraine as well, which we'll turn to in due course. But I thought it was worthy starting of starting that because it's incidents like this that can, can be the spark that, that lights a far larger powder keg and thankfully it wasn't in this instance. Well thank you very much Francis for talking us through that. Can we just for the benefit of our international listeners stay in the UK just for a moment? International listeners will probably be aware that British politics is in a state of of, of chaos at the moment. Um, We we don't know whether the Prime Minister will survive the day or the week or to the end of next week or whenever. Um, Francis can you just give give our listeners some um, context on what's happening and if possible give some some idea of what this might mean for uh, Britain's support of Ukraine? Certainly. Well, yes, in another example of events that may spiral out of control imminently, to con- condense it in a, in a, in a, short, in a short way is difficult, but I'll, do, I'll seek to do so. In, a, in essence, we've got a new Prime Minister replacing Boris Johnson, that is uh, Liz Truss, the former Foreign Secretary, very, very hawkish on matters relating to Ukraine, and indeed has doubled down on her support of the country ever since she took power about five or six weeks ago now. Um, she was derailed almost immediately into her premiership as a consequence of a launch of a dubbed mini budget seeking to cut taxes but retain, should I say, very high public spending. And essentially this spooked the markets in such a way that uh, the pound dropped um, and was almost on equilibrium with the with the dollar at one point. And it really led to a political crisis here, which has led numerous members of the of the cabinet to now walk away um, and, and, and further disturbance within parliamentary parties. Party itself, this being the Conservative Party, the governing party here. And it's now looking very, very likely that Liz Truss may well be dethroned by this. By no means certain, but that's looking to be the case. Now, what are the ramifications for that? Well, I think you have to say, first of all, that it's not a great look, is it, that uh, one of the foremost supporting powers of Ukraine is is at this moment going through such political turmoil. It, it doesn't put forward a, a robust sign of, of, of strength at a critical juncture. And as I say, I think that, that does have consequences. No doubt Putin will be rubbing his hands watching what's happening. Um, But in terms of the broader picture, I think it's actually not perhaps quite as dramatic as some think. I mean, the Conservative Party, I think, will almost certainly um, find a new leader if she does go and somebody who will, will offer some stability. I mean, they have no choice, essentially. They're going to have to find somebody who can who can form some kind of stable administration. And uh, in because of the nature of the Conservative Party at the moment, I think they will retain their support of Ukraine to the hilt. And uh, But I think it is worth saying that the current favourite, Rishi Sunak, was believed, perceived uh, as, as somebody who was perhaps less, I suppose, acutely aware of the sensitivities of what was going going on in Ukraine. He hasn't been as vocal about it. He's been more concerned about economics. And indeed, some have commented that his concern being the economy, he's the former chancellor, his, his emphasis will not be on foreign affairs, will be on um, stabilising the economic ship here in the UK if he does assume power. Thank you very much for that, Francis. That, um, hopefully for our international listeners and our Ukrainian listeners, that does give a, uh, a, a decent sort of overview of what, what's happening here and why it's relevant. Um, let's turn to Ukraine. There's quite a few updates from the country itself, of course, before we bring in Sergio. So, Francis, can you just talk us through what's the latest from Ukraine? Yes, well, turning, of course, to the vital front in Ukraine. So first of all, I think we should just touch on the ramifications of the electricity issues that, of course, uh, Ukraine has been having as a consequence of these drone strikes that we spoke about at length in in recent days. So Ukraine is now restricting electricity usage nationwide for the first time following that barrage of Russian missile and drone strikes, which has destroyed the power plants. That comes on the back of Putin imposing martial law on territories 
annexed from Ukraine uh, and boosting the powers of his security services in those regions along the Ukrainian border. I think it's obvious why he's doing that, seeking to uh, cement his control in those places. Though, as I say, the Ukrainians are continuing to advance in some of those uh, annexed territories and so it doesn't necessarily change the um, military situation but nonetheless I think worthy of note but of course the big story and one that that Sergei, Sergei will be able to offer a lot more detail on given that he's in the area at the moment is around what is happening around Herzon. So very briefly, the UK Ministry of Defence has has offered some analysis this morning saying that Russia is considering withdrawing troops and equipment over the Dnipro River, despite all the permanent bridges being destroyed there. That's something that, or, or at least severely damaged. Some are destroyed, some are damaged. That's something, of course, that Dom has spoken about at length in the past, and he'll be, I'm sure, be able to do so in more detail tomorrow. Now, there's been also on the back of this a rare admission by Russia's new general uh, about the difficulties facing Russian troops in Herzon. He said uh, in, in Russian media that, quote, a difficult situation has emerged in Herzon, uh, where Ukraine has been conducting, of course, a string of successful counteroffensives and says that the uh, as a consequence of this, that withdrawal is being considered. As I say, that's echoed by the by the MOD, and uh, and also another interesting piece of analysis on this that's just worthy to, worth talking about is from the Institute of the Study of War, which is saying that it believes that as a consequence of any withdrawal, it seems likely, given the research that they've been putting together, that Russia will seek to destroy the dam near the city of Kherson. Blame it on Ukraine as part of its plan for the withdrawal, saying that in a sense to conduct a, a false flag attack and, and, and blaming the breaching of the dam on the Ukrainians in order to cover the retreat and to prevent the, and delay the Ukrainian advances across it. So very, very um, significant developments on that front. And of course, one that we follow very, very closely on the podcast from the beginning. But no doubt, as I say, Sergio can offer a lot more insights on what's really happening on the ground. Thank you very much for that, Francis. Well, Sergio, this is a perfect time to turn to you. Uh, Francis has given us a, a broad sort of strategic update. You've been on the ground uh, near Herson. Can you tell us a little bit about where, where you've been um, and what you've seen? Yeah, so we were able to go right up to the front line. We were in a recently, recently liberated village uh, that was, they told us they had been liberated like October 4th, but I think officially it's been liberated on the 12th. And um, we got some incredible access. You, you know, there's a media blackout in Hirson, so you can't really go down there by yourself. You have to go with a press officer, and usually that can be, uh, cumbersome and and you know not very you don't see that much but our press officer was just willing to go you know right up right up to it and we we got to talk to residents and and villages that had been liberated two weeks ago and and we and then we got to talk to residents who were like right next to tanks that were firing at russians and the the most interesting part of that was we were right there talking to a resident and um uh, this unit rolls up and their their movements are so swift. I mean, they they they're not sloppy. They don't stand around. They kind of know what they're doing. And we we're talking to them and saying, you know, you know, what's going on here? And they're like, well, you know, this is this is mostly outgoing fire. There's some incoming, but you know, that's it. That's our tank working right there. The, the bastards uh, are a kilometer away. Should take cover. Uh, there's shrapnel flying around everywhere. And, and he's like, you guys got pretty close. Like, he's like, there's nowhere else to go. This is a kilometer away as the Russians. So seeing it from that perspective, I can tell you that there's a couple of differences from Hirson to the Kharkiv counteroffensive because I, I covered both. One of them, the most striking one is the terrain is different. Right? It's not forest. Kherson is huge open fields. And because of that, even these liberated villages, when you're driving between them, you're pretty exposed. I mean, it's not just you in a car. I mean, anyone's exposed, the tanks, the convoys. Um, and that's really striking. I mean, it was a clear, beautiful day. And dr just driving between Liberty Villages, we saw a fighter jet, you know, twisting in the air. I saw anti-air defense really close by, knock something out of the sky. And it, it's over before you even know it. know it. I mean, it literally shot, exploded, and it looked like somebody put their cigarette out in the blue sky. And you hear artillery 
uh, almost nonstop. And what's interesting is when you're driving between villages, if you look to your left, we saw smoke kind of hitting positions. Look to our right, we saw smoke hitting positions on either side of the road for kilometers in the distance. And it was just like, wow, the front line is super active in many directions. And um, the other interesting thing was there was a lot of trenches that we passed that were Russian trenches. And I got to go inside some of them. And we were just kind of looking at the different the different ones. I mean, there were some that were pretty there was zigzagged. And then there were some that were in a straight line for hundreds of feet. And we know now, you know, since from World War One, like you don't dig straight lines and trenches because, you know, shrapnel can go through it. It's easier to target. You know, if a drone's hovering overhead, it's, it's a very easy task for a drone. Um, so it's just, it, it, it was just kind of this very lazily dug fortifications in some cases. And there was dead Russians still on the, in some of the trenches, outside the trenches. Um, in one case, there was a, a commander who had been, uh, he's still laying on the ground and uh, we kind of stopped there to, to look at him and look at the fortifications and soldiers would pass by and just kind of glance over and, you know, kind of smirk and keep driving. And in the trenches, you know, I, I saw a, a pot of stew that with a spoon still in it. And I was just taken back by like how, you know, how recent Russians were fighting in these very trenches. Um, the officer we were with was telling us that, that, they had cases of guys who would um, stick their legs out of the trenches, hoping to get shot and like the, the ankle to get pulled out of the front lines. He said that some of them were, were so poorly trained that recently uh, uh, mobilized that they just, they would, they would put up a, 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 the appearance of a fight. But when Ukrainian forces got close with, you know, with tanks and um, with uh, drones and, you know, the, the combined, the combined arms is, is a, um, Dom calls it like they would start retreating that, you know, they, they would put up a fight when they're in the distance, but close by, they would just pull back. And, and, um, and the other thing too, about the trenches, not to blaze, but blaze this point, but they were so, they were, they were so narrow, like they were dug, uh, 30 centimeters is, is what we, we measured, which is, I mean, that's not very high. Like you, you have to lay down in them basically to get cover. And it just shows you like what poor discipline and what like, you know, that is not a serious effort to to either protect your your troops or to really hold that position. I mean, thirty centimeters is quite is quite short. Um, um, and then you know, moving away from that stuff, I, I can tell you that the biggest takeaway was that this is not inevitable for Ukrainian forces to win this counteroffensive. I mean, I saw an American Humvee uh, on the side of a, of some trenches that was blown out. And the Ukrainian soldiers were like, yeah, that was a that was a Shahid Iranian drone that hit that last week. And it just makes you think like, geez, you know, that is a you know, that's a pretty good piece of equipment. These are the, these lines where I'm standing at that moment were, I thought, pretty secure. And they were just like, yeah, no, the, you know, the drones, they're there. You, you look up like they, they might be around here somewhere. And um some of the villages are right on the Dnieper River, and you can literally see the, you know, the opposite side of it, which is the Russian-occupied area. And you get told right away, like, look, if you're going to go in and out, you know, you got to watch out because they can see you. There's mortar fire in the area. Um, the residents were saying that, you know, this stuff happens in the middle of the day. You know, kind of midday is the worst time. So much to talk about. Thank you so much for that overview, um, Sergio. You, you, you've talked about going to the trenches and talking to the soldiers, but you've, you're also speaking to residents. Um, can you tell us what the Ukrainians are telling you when you, when you move around these, uh, these liberated villages? Yeah, it's further away from the fighting, people are much more open to talk. And that, that's similar to what we've seen in other liberated areas. They all, we've talked to a couple who had lost, their, whole, their home had been destroyed, but the entire village had been destroyed. And they, they were saying, you know, we have built this for 10 years and then perfecting it for the last 15, really making it a home. I kind of saying, like, we built a house for 10 years and then we made a home for 15. And it was all destroyed. There was a rocket sticking in their front door, just like on their doorstep. And uh, it was sad. You know, she was, the, the mom was just, you know, just crying inside of her living room, which is completely destroyed. But um, they had cows and they the cows had had when they had come back they had noticed the cows were 
were they would wander around the town to eat food because but when they left the village they obviously released all their animals it, it's you know it's a cruelty to kind of keep them tied up you have to release them and to give them a chance to survive and the cows would eat whatever they could around town and then come back and sleep at their house at night and that was that was really interesting we saw similar things with with other animals uh, chickens and dogs and cats and stuff and then i and then i talked to people who were totally afraid of of russians still uh, right on the front lines people did not want to be filmed they do not want to give out their name they'll tell you they'll talk to you like hey man like what 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 do you want to know um and many of them we got to speak to them under very harsh conditions which is they're some of these, you know, only these villages really, there's no electricity, no running water. So volunteers will bring in water and residents will come out to fill up their buckets and you get to kind of speak to people. Um, and, you know, they're telling you stuff that, you know, you can imagine what they're telling you, which is shelling is, is bad. You know, the Russian occupation was bad, but they don't want to give too many details. We got some of those details further away from the front line. And, and I can just tell you briefly we were talking to a, a man who was a librarian and it was so interesting because he was saying that he's like, look, uh, you know, we have the town documents in the library. We have the kind of the overview of, you know, all the municipality kind of stuff. And when Russians came in, you know, I, I, you know, they, they were, they, they interrogated me because they were accusing me of hiding this stuff. And he's like, you know, I, I, I was, but you know, that can't, you know, he <laughs> kind of, was you know offended that they would accuse him and but he says he was and he said like he said when they came in it's like a mafia state that it was a uh, 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 the, the Rose Guardia they were in charge of that area the guy who was in, the commander was named Mandarin that was his code name it was a, mostly Chechens they uh, they took the farming equipment from the farmers there it's a big farming community out there as we know and this farming equipment he, he was telling me he's like you know. It's like, he's like, I don't understand them because we just, we looked it up on the GPS and the combine had, had been taken to Chechnya. And he's like, he's like, do they not know that like, we can just look this up on the internet? Like they have trackers on them. And he was just like, almost offended, not by the theft so much, but just by the, 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 the idea that they wouldn't know that this was, that this very expensive farming equipment was trackable, that, you know, that, that lying to them that, oh, we don't know what happened to your tractor, that that offended him more than just a straight looting and then the other thing was he said that uh, mandarin was a guy who was very very mean to the males in the, in the town and was especially mean to those he viewed as soft so some of them some of the town people they're natural you know naturally they're just more say um soft-spoken or they're more um uh, submissive in, in a tone or whatever and he would be meaner to them he said like cruel um, and, and we're talking about, you know, beatings and stuff like that. He, he also said that, that, that the, he's like, you know, there was no rule of law. He's like, we have two gas stations nearby. Mandarin took, took him over. And he, and he said quite cruelly that he told the owners like, well, you work for me now, like this is mine, but you know, you keep working it and you know, uh, you basically pay me tax and almost like a fiefdom. And that was, that was, again, it came across like how offensive it was. Um, he said that that soldiers would come back from other Ukrainian towns trying to sell washers and power tools to them. And they would they would they would, again, be offended that, like, we know the other town. We know, you know, whose power tools these are. Why? Why are you? You know, it's one thing to loot. It's another to kind of try to sell us our neighbors power tools. Um, so that that really struck me because uh, we know about the looting. We have seen that in Bucha. We've seen that in Kharkiv region. But this was so interesting because they. They, you know, they could talk, talk about just the, the everyday kind of like putting up with this clear mafia kind of attitude. And you also met a grandmother called Nina in her 60s. Can you tell us about her? What did she tell you? She, I'm going to quote you what she said because she was the nicest grandmother. She's just like any other grandmother. You know, she has uh, chickens and she has a garden and she has a daughter she's telling us about. But then when we, when we asked her about uh you know russia she had a a, a a speech that you know we've put it up on the internet and i'm going to tell you her the opening of her kind of little speech on the side of the road that she's on her bicycle and she says to me um putin is huilo which is like bastard putin is bastard and you know, he's he, he should stop killing civilians 
Putin is fucker. He should stop killing civilians. Goddamn fucking animal. I wish him death. God, please forgive me for this. Putin has to be cursed. He should come here. We will bury him. I will kill that goddamn motherfucker with my bare hands. And she goes on like this, and, and her neighbor sees her, and her neighbor's picking up shrapnel from her garden, and her neighbor's this kind old lady, and she joins in, you know, cursing Putin. And these are older grandmas, you know, they're so nice and polite, and they, you know, they'll offer you tea, whatever they have. But as soon as we're asking about Putin, they're just like, they unload, like, I will kill this motherfucker with my bare hands. That's quite extraordinary. Just moving away from the residents, Sergio, um, what was your sense of the mood uh, amongst the soldiers? Um, I mean, and, and you said, you know, this, this offensive isn't, isn't a done deal. It's, it's a harder fight in the South. The Iranian drones are making an impact. How, how is their morale? What, what did they tell you? Yeah, I can tell you the ones that I saw were quite enthusiastic. Um, I saw some special forces guys who were, um, uh, I mean, they were in their element. They had a tablet with drone footage out they had shemogs and high-cut helmets and ballistic glasses and again knew what they were doing and were on, clearly on the hunt i mean they they came across as predators you know stalking the tall grass and i talked to some soldiers who were coming off the front lines um and you know they were dusty they were dirty i mean i don't know if you've but what, what the front lines smell like is you can smell it i mean you can smell people who have been living in their clothing and and their spirits were were quite high. I mean, they were telling jokes with us. They were um, they were just you know. In one case, we talked to some guys next to a burned out Russian tank, and they were just laughing at the uh, at the you know the, the the tank crew who had you know been caught there. Uh, so I, the the ones I talked to were enthusiastic. I would say though that we should caution that uh, I didn't visit a hospital, right? I didn't visit I didn't visit a field hospital or anything like that, and that might have been a very different experience, but. On the, on the front lines, um, the Hearson soldiers I met were definitely good spirits. And, and I would say that if that was similar to the Kharkiv offensive where we rolled into a Zoom or, or you know, Balaklia or even Kupians and soldiers were very clearly on the hunt, you know, aggressive, not like, you know, morale was not slipping. I mean, I, I think the, they're, they're pushing forward. And even, even when I was there, new villages were getting taken over. And I'm not going to say which, but, you know, that attitude was in the air. I mean, it was very dangerous. Like, like the skies are, are blue and then black because of, of firing. But um, you, you might expect to hear, like, you might expect to hear, like, a lot more, um, um, I don't know, like, exhaustion. But I, I, I got mostly, mostly a feeling of, like, predators on the hunt kind of giddy to, to keep moving forward. Can I ask just quickly, I mean, you might not have seen too much of this, but obviously um, Western uh, supplies to Ukraine in terms of weapons, ammunition and everything else uh, has been a constant subject all the way through this this conflict. Um, you, you talked briefly about the kind of, you know, the, the equipment they've got, but did you hear from them what, what they wanted more of or, or, or what they wanted the, the West to, to provide? No, and I'll tell you why, though, because uh, there, is a, there is a blackout with anything military. And so kind of I, I couldn't really... You know, I kind of really start asking about like what equipment, you know, officers at the moment were just tell you like, hey, man, we can't like we can't talk about that stuff. Um, so I, I don't really have much there. I, you know, I could tell you what like just not grunts, but, you know, just everyday soldiers were doing, you know, you know, smoking a cigarette and talking. But, you know, in terms of uh, kind of higher level, like here's what we need, here's what we're lacking in supplies at the moment that I, I just don't have anything for you there. No, that's really that's that's a fantastic answer. Thank you, Sergio. It's, it's even even if we don't know, it's good to know why. So thank you for explaining. Um, Francis, um, I know you've been listening to all of this and you've got some questions, but very quickly, could you just update? I mean, you, you mentioned the travise of the British government. Um, it, it's continuing as we speak. Can you just update our listeners as to where we are? It absolutely is, David. So as I speak, Liz Truss is about to give a speech outside of Number 10 Downing Street, of course, the, the home of the British Prime Minister. And it sounds as if she is going to resign. Uh, not confirmed yet, but that seems to be what we're hearing. So, of course, more news on that as we have it. It's literally happening as we speak. So, um, But my question to Sergio is so fascinating hearing Sergio's insights on this. Um, Sergio, so much has been spoken about Hezon symbolically in this war. It's become something of a of a sort of Stalingrad city, at least how it's spoken about as, as being a key front in this with symbolic value for the Ukrainians and, of course, symbolic value for Putin to hold on to it. Just wondered if you had any insights on that, on the people that you've spoken to, or perhaps that's a very much a Western narrative rather than a Ukrainian one. No, I, I think 
it's it is here as well. Uh, people definitely want to take back your song. It's such a. I mean, even even when I was um, talking about your song, people would ask like, look at me, like, like you know, you came back from here, son. They would look at me like. Hirsan region or Hirsan the city, you know, kind of like, did we take the city? I, I think uh, Ukrainians are, are uh, they're all eyes are on Hirsan at the moment for Ukraine. Thank you. And and just generally, I wanted to ask if, if there's anything that struck you being out there that perhaps was different than you than you expected. Any any real shocks further to the ones that you've already spoken about? Yeah, I may, maybe I'll just reiterate an earlier point that and we, I'm happy to eat my words, but it doesn't feel like the Kharkiv offensive. I know this has been uttered by Ukrainian officials. President Volodymyr Zelensky has already cautioned people that this is not going to be a, a lightning thing, that it's going to be a, a kind of a grind. And I know that today the British Ministry of Defense said that they're, ex- that they're expecting Russian forces to possibly have a huge withdrawal on the west side of the Dnieper River. I Just coming back to the front lines, to me it seems that there's, there's real challenges but one is the terrain is it's very open, right? It's and you can see kilometers in every direction. So uh, that is just hard to fight, and it's not forest. There's not a lot of shade. I mean, you you full view of drones, airplanes, um, you know, and artillery. And that vil- that village we went to, where there was were one kilometer for Russian forces, had been liberated already more than a week ago. I think five days earlier, and there was heavy fighting, just just a kilometer away. Which makes me think that you know this this is very you know very different from what we saw even in, in Le Mans right in in, in the Donbass I, I mean uh, it doesn't seem like they're simply running away it seems like like because the terrain the trenches the open the open fields that it's just going to be a, a much bloodier like every kilometer is going to cost a lot more I'm happy to eat those words if it turns out that you know there's a collapse tomorrow and it turns into a route or something. But I would just caution that, you know, because of the terrain and it, it, it is a different thing than, the, than what we saw in Kharkiv. And Sergio, what are you going to be doing next? You've been in Hassan, um for a while. What, where is your reporting taking you? Well, uh, again, if uh, Hirsan, if there is a collapse, I'm actually heading right back down. So, uh, uh, and I actually was just talking to Telegraph about, you know, we were just discussing if, if that happens and heading right back down. But otherwise... This this issue with the Belarusian border, I might look into that. Michael up there, um, and and just generally, I'm back in Kiev, and there's today there's air raid sirens. We were just driving by one of the um, power stations there, uh, going to our hardware store where people were stocking up on stuff, and you know it feels, you know I, I've been here since March, but it, it it feels almost like to me it feels like a pre-March, like the stuff I wasn't here for the early days when there was missiles coming all the time because right now in Kiev, you know, businesses, a lot of them are closed up. Um, people are turning off their lights. People are, you know, last night my landlord texted me saying like, Hey, uh, make sure you guys all shower tonight. Cause I don't know if the hot water is going to you know, be working this week. And, and it feels like, it feels like it just came back in the front lines and I'm worried about missiles now and here at home in Kiev. And that to me is, 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 is you know, there's like reporting to do here. Um, so I'm not sure, but I think, you know, they, I mean, I'm I'm constantly like now looking out for that that sound of the lawnmower here in Kiev to to see if a, a, a you know drones overhead. So that's something that that's sticking with me. And Sergio, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to understand or to know about what what you've been seeing in in the south? Yeah, I don't know if if this is if your listeners might already know this, but to me, I, I was reminded of it that going down to the Hirsan and seeing it and just seeing how difficult, I mean, the fight, there was a tank firing, right? I mean, there was every kilometer has to be taken with violence. And it just made me think because, and even in, I myself will think, okay, Kharkiv counteroffensive seems done. Now they're moving on to the south. That should be done by this time. Like, and I reminded that none of this is inevitable. None of this is determined. I, I think we think that Ukrainians will just get this job done. But I, I mean, these are 20 year old guys, a lot of them with dust on their face in the sun, you know, braving shelling to like, to get a kilometer. And I just think like, uh, you know, none of this is inevitable. None of this should be, you know, factored in is like, definitely going to happen. And, um, you know, your listeners might might already know that. But I, to me, I just think like, this is not Call of Duty. This is not, you know, some, 
you know, this is not some some movie like this is this is, you know, young guys who would rather be probably in university or, you know, out of the bar somewhere who are having to, you know, dig a trench and avoid artillery to, you know, gain a kilometer this week so that there could be a new settlement, you know, retaken. And I'm just reminded of how um, unfair and, and cruel all this is. You know, this is everyone's taking time out of their regular lives now for seven months, you know, to 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 try to return to normal, to try to just, you know, not be under the heel of a, of a, of a dictator in another country. Right. And I, and I'm just reminded of all that, that this is, uh, it's not fun. It's not a game. And it's, it's, um, things can go very bad. And the only thing keeping that from it is, is the will of, of, you know, 20 year old guys out there who refuse to, to retreat. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sergio. That was extremely interesting. And thank you for all of your reporting. Uh, for our listeners, if you want to read Sergio's dispatch, do just go to the Telegraph website. You'll find it there. It's it's quite a read. And he talks about a lot of the things we've just discussed. Um, Francis, can I come to you? Um, there's more updates, I'm, I'm very sorry to say, from the world of British politics. There certainly is, David. Well, Liz Truss has resigned. It's, it's happened. That I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure... Yes, we will have a new prime minister within one week. No answer yet as to who that will be or the exact details of what the process in order to get that new prime minister will be. But Liz Truss has herself resigned outside of Number 10 Downing Street. Just wanted to cover also something else just to, to, I could ask Sergio about, which is, of course, the, the updates on the significance of these drones. Sergio has already talked about them uh, in, in detail and what he's seen on the ground. But there's just been a few updates in this space. And given we've covered so much on it, I just wanted to touch on it again. So... The EU has now agreed sanctions against three individuals and one entity supplying Iranian drones to Russia that have been used to bomb Ukraine. That's come out of the EU's Czech presidency or, um, earlier um, this morning. After three days of talks, this is a quote, EU ambassadors agreed on measures against entities supplying Iranian drones that are hitting Ukraine. This obviously follows on Wednesday, the US, Britain and France expressing concerns over Iran's alleged transfer of drones to Russia. Indeed, I think there's been a lot of back channel communications on this with Iran because of the dialogue around the nuclear deal and everything else. And I think there's a very serious chance that that is in jeopardy as a consequence of this. But as I say, that's something that we touched on earlier on in the week. And so um, would point listeners to the episode where we discussed that in more detail with James in Jerusalem. Um, Just whilst we're on the subject of drones, we've had a very interesting interview in The Telegraph with Major General James Martin, who is the commander of Britain's warfighting division. And he has talked about the proliferation of drones and how it means that one can no longer count on controlling the skies in war um, as a consequence of this of this new development and quote we don't assume we have control of airspace anymore we don't assume we have air superiority or supremacy as we have done in the middle east we now assume that we will have limited windows opportunity to do what we want to do that's the difference between fighting a peer adversary versus fighting a counterinsurgency now of course he's talking in the context here of if of, of in a future military style engagement where the british army will have boots on the ground but of course this 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 these remarks i think should be seen in the context of of what ukraine is doing in in combating them and the fact that britain is supplying weapons to combat them is suggestive of just how difficult it is on the front line in ukraine to be battling against these against these drones but as i say i wanted to to just ask sergio what's your feeling on the significance of these drones for what's changing on the battlefield is it something that is is being interpreted as as a as a game changer or is perhaps that actually slightly overegging it no it absolutely is a game changer and not just for the battlefield i think the insidious the insidiousness of it is that like because they're so slow the air raid the air raid sirens are a lot longer they last hours now and because they come in these huge waves you know, some are going to get through, and that 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 psychological factor just here, um, you know, it means that people are hearing an area sign for five hours. So they they and they know some will get through, and because you can't just stay in a bomb shelter for five hours, you have to you know keep going out and doing conducting your business. You have to you have to go to school, you have to go to the grocery store, whatever, and you just know now that something's gonna something might be hovering overhead, and that's the insidiousness of it. 
on the battlefield, uh, what I felt again seeing that Humvee burned out was, um, damn, you know, there is, you know, the, you know, this is, this is the, it's the roll of the dice out here. It's clear skies. You, you could be in a really, you know, uh, an armored vehicle, but if if the drone sees you, like, like you know, goodbye. Like that, you know, there's really, uh, there, you know it's not like the missile defenses or the, you know, the cruise missiles where I, I can tell you, you know, when there's a cruise missile launch, they get detected and you kind of know, okay, you got about 20 minutes. Um, you know, the, the air defenses may shoot some of them down, but you can head down to the shelter with these drones. You know, they may, the, the, you know, they may say the drones have launched and you, the next five hours, you're just kind of waiting to see if anything gets hit. Thank you, Sergio. Thank you, Francis, for your questions. Francis, just one more update. Um, can I ask you what is happening in Italy? We've, we, we, we talked about it briefly yesterday. Um, Silvio Berlusconi, uh, who's in the um, coalition Italian government, uh, and there's more details coming out from, from some, some, some things he's been saying. Can you talk us through it? Yes, Britain is not the only country that's going through political turmoil at the moment. I spoke yesterday about Italy and the uh, leak that Silvia Berlusconi, who's going to be having some kind of role in the new right-wing government set to, to take over soon, uh, had, had said that he'd renewed his his uh, friendship with Vladimir Putin as a consequence of a delivery of a of a special birthday card and some bottles of vodka. And indeed, there's been a further leak today, uh, which has gone further in his accusations and interpretation of the war. He has blamed Ukraine, indeed, for starting the conflict with Russia, claiming that Putin was forced into ordering the invasion against his will. Now, as I say, this, these inflammatory remarks come on the back of what's already been a very embarrassing week for the uh, coalition to take over. In the leaked audio clip published by an Italian news agency, the former prime minister claims that Zelensky had embarked on an aggressive policy towards the regions in eastern Ukraine claimed by Russia. Now, I'll, I'll quote explicitly from him. You know how the thing in Russia happened, right? Do, 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 do. He claimed that, that, that he's, they, among the soldiers who were deployed, the Republic suffered around five to six or seven thousand casualties. Zelensky comes on the scene and he triples the attacks on the two republics. The war, instead of being a two week operation, has become a war that will last for 200 years or more. So very, very incendiary remarks indeed. And you can see why it's caused such consternation in Italy. No doubt there'll be more fallout on that tomorrow. In terms of my final thought, I just wanted to reflect on, well, uh, what's happening in Britain, really. I think it's fair to say the, that this is a huge embarrassment for the Conservative Party, a huge embarrassment for the country, really, on the international stage. Often when one is comparing democratic politics, it's often said that Britain is has one of the stablest in the world, has the mother of all parliaments, of course, being the House of Commons in, in, the, in, in Westminster. And yet the chaos of recent weeks with not only uh, Boris Johnson being ousted from power, but now uh, Liz Truss being forced to resign due to errors made by her and her cabinet uh, is as I said earlier on, something that no doubt Putin will be watching very closely and 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 gleefully, frankly, given, as I say, the robustness of Liz Truss on the matter of Ukraine. Now, one other thing I wanted to touch in on this is that, of course, Ben Wallace, who has been one of the most articulate defenders of Ukraine, is in Liz Truss's cabinet. He remained in the same role as Defence Secretary as he did under Boris Johnson. Now, we don't know, of course, who is going to cede Liz Truss, but whoever it is will have a decision to make as to whether to keep Ben Wallace in that role. I would expect that they will keep him there, but it's by no means certain. And, and I think that that is something that could be a potential consequence of this, that new prime ministers bring in a new cabinet and, and certain people are, are removed as a result, even if they've been doing a good job up until now. Now, as I say, that's not me speculating that he will go, but I'm just saying that it's a possibility. And so, as I say, extraordinary events that we've obviously been following live on the broadcast today, but there will be more fallout on this tomorrow and one some that we'll no doubt go into more detail on, but quite, quite an extraordinary day in British politics. The resignation of Liz Truss as British PM today has punctuated today's discussion on Ukraine the latest. My colleague Christopher Hope has a politics podcast for The Telegraph. It's called Chopper's Politics. And this morning, before the news of Liz Truss stepping down was announced, he interviewed the British Armed Forces Minister, James Heapy. They talked a little bit about Ukraine and Russia. Here's their conversation. 
When you were last on this podcast, shortly after the war broke out, Russia's invaded Ukraine, you said this. There are missile systems deployed in Belarus that are capable of delivering tactical nuclear payloads, so battlefield nuclear weapons. And I don't know whether he would use those. I think that Russia has a doctrine of a violent overmatch, so the more resistance it meets, it just goes... For the risk of tactical nuclear payloads in the war in Ukraine, that hasn't happened yet, but how near are we to Putin deploying nukes? So I think there's good news and bad. The good news is that that was the case then, that there were missiles like the Iskander, for example, that were based in Belarus that have the capability of carrying tactical nuclear payloads. But so many of those Iskander missiles and, and the other kind of high-end, sophisticated cruise missile-type systems that Russia had in its arsenal in February have now been wasted in an appallingly badly um, delivered military plan, if indeed there was really a plan, um, that in many ways the kind of scale of that threat is diminished. But that's the good news. The bad news is that so bad has been the execution of the Russian plan. So many generals have been sacked by Putin as the operational commander. So regularly has the Russian plan faltered and the Ukrainians capitalized and pushed them back that, as, that, that the closer the Ukrainians get to the outcome that we all desire, the more that Putin's rhetoric is designed to intimidate and, and more to fracture more the Western alliance. Now, well, I think there's a des there's a difference right. between the tactical the tactical use of the threat to try to fracture Western cohesion, warn the West off from further arming of Ukraine, versus whether he really means it. It is the mo he is the only person who is talking about this as a nuclear crisis. No, nobody else is. This is. You know, he th there's a Russian elite who will be absolutely amazed that a limited special military operation that was going to be over in three days is now in reverse 200 days plus later. And there are sensible people in Russia and Putin. Putin doesn't have, you know, he's not he's not suicidal. He's he's. He knows what he's doing. And if you look at what he was saying in Astana the other day, it was very different to the language he was using the week before. So I think we have to hold our course. We have to make sure that our allies are still solid around us. And the perverse thing is for all of the trials and tribulations at home, internationally, the UK continues to lead in this stuff. The conversations we have with our defense and foreign policy colleagues around the world they look to us to sort of say how we see it, what we think comes next. So we just need to keep people focused on the fact that Ukraine must win. This must end on Zelensky's terms, that to not achieve that would be to set the conditions for the and rest what, of the What century. is a win? Is it exiting Russian forces, exiting all of Ukraine territory, including Crimea? Well, I think that's for Zelensky to define. And I think it's for... You know, and, and I think we have to be ready to stand behind him in, what in, in that. Um, I think it becomes, you immediately create the conditions for fracture of the Western alliance if you start to say that we're going to try to negotiate with Zelensky about what, are, what we think are appropriate terms. That, that is to erode his sovereignty and to reward Putin's belligerence. But I think we all also have a very clear idea of kind of what would be a provocation to many. And um, I don't think it'd be appropriate to, to be explicit about those. But, but the, the overarching principle is this is about where Zelensky wants it to end. But of course, set against a very clear understanding of how we would avoid provoking and the European Union alliance, that, that won't fracture, that the, the, the UK can continue to lead and keep that together. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what's really interesting for all of those who say that our place in the world is now hugely diminished and our role in Europe is now one and irrelevance, that, that, is, that is wishful thinking on the part of those who are seeking to play out an anti-Brexit narrative. The reality is, is that the last two years has reinforced just how central the UK is to Europe as a community of nations and our shared security. 
And the fact that we no longer sit at the commission top table, an irrelevance compared to the role that we play in shaping the views of allies around the continent. Britain's role has almost grown, really, outside the EU. I mean, there's... Okay, we've, we've, thought, we, we've reminded yeah. European allies of okay. our centrality to European security, if nothing else. And the question, which I've got to ask you, it might be un- un- unanswerable. When does the war end? Um, is, that is a tough one to answer. It could be, could be relatively soon. The Ukrainians are doing well. The, Ru- the Russians are resorting to conscripts and have increasingly depleted stockpiles with which to prosecute their campaign. But... But the weather and the state of the ground in Ukraine will have a vote in that over the next six months. Um, and Russia is still an awfully big country against which the Ukrainians have to fight. And so, so there is, so as much as it is possible that it could all be over very quickly, it is equally possible that it could be grinding on in two or three years' time. And I think we have to set ourselves for the latter, but hope for the, uh, but hope for the former. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter to make sure you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and... If you have a moment, leave a review, as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Isabel Bujard, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Just before you go, listeners, I wanted to tell you about another podcast you might like from our foreign desk here at The Telegraph. It's called How to Be a Dictator by our brilliant China correspondent, Sophia Yan, who you will have heard on Ukraine the latest quite a few times. Here's a sneak peek. Right now, the whole world is watching China. It's the 20th Party Congress, a twice in a decade political set piece that reveals the outcome of China's very secretive leadership selection. And there is, of course, only one man in the running, Xi Jinping. This is seismic. After the death of Chairman Mao Zedong, there has been a two-term limit on Chinese leaders. No more. Xi is on the cusp of effectively becoming ruler for life. Understanding him has never been more important. They turned this place into a hell. We're in Beijing. We, we see business people got disappear by the day all the time. I mean, everything is protected and you're under constant watch. But reporting on Xi? Well, that might be my toughest assignment yet. I've come into a bathroom now to try to upload all these files in case on my way out I get stopped and searched and they try to delete these. Despite 10 years in power, he remains a puzzle. One we know very little about beyond official propaganda. Who is he, really? How has he managed to build a cult of personality? What kind of a leader has this made him? And what does that mean for all of us? China under Xi doesn't like these sorts of questions. Don't touch me! But I'm going to try and ask them anyway. I'm Sophia Yan, and this is How to Become a Dictator. Coming soon from The Telegraph. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.